inspired by the Canadian Federation of the Blind. Outlook, a show about accessibility, advocacy, and equality. I'm Brian. And I'm Carrie. Outlook. Radio Western. And good morning. Welcome to another Outlook on this Monday morning. Labor Day, actually. We're back, and this is Radio Western. You're listening to Outlook, and we have our, another guest today. Uh, but Brian, before we get to that, I thought we could just give a little uh, announcement about our guest from last week. Yeah, thanks again to Caroline Karbowski for being our guest last week. Such a fascinating interview, and if you didn't catch it, I would highly recommend you do. You can now find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts as a podcast. It's just search for Outlook on Radio Western. And we're still on SoundCloud as well. Um, so yeah, look that up and check that out. And also wanted to give one more thing that I wanted to mention last week when she was on, but I ran out of time. There was so much to talk about. Um, but the not-for-profit not that uh, Caroline Karbowski is the CEO for, C3D, is pleased to announce that they will be speaking at the Inclusion in Science Learning, A New Direction, which is the Island Conference. Uh, since 2010, this program has provided an outlet of ideas to address how people with disabilities can have increased accessibility for science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. This year's Island Conference will be hosted by Princeton University via Zoom on Saturday, September the 12th, from 9 a.m. until 5.15, and... Caroline Karbowski, the C3D CEO, will be speaking at 2.20 p.m. that day. So highly recommended checking that out. If you want to register and get more info about this conference, go to islandconference.org. Great. Yeah, what a fascinating discussion, la discussion last week. And uh, everybody check that out. C as in S-E-E. -E. But today, uh, our guest is someone that we actually meant to have on a long time ago, and we would have had on had she maybe arrived in here on Ontario and in person um, this summer, had the pandemic not come upon us. But so we're talking to her virtually, like we are with most guests now, and uh, she is perfect for this two-year, actually two-year anniversary of Outlook, Brian. Yes, September 10th, 2018 was our first show. Yeah. And last year's anniversary show is actually on the Radio Western YouTube channel. Uh, there's a video of that show, of us in the studio at the time, so. Yeah, just, um, it looks kind of neat, I think, to show. We use braille displays, some technology here to run things normally when we're in studio, and even right now. Yeah, so check out the Radio Western YouTube channel for that. Yeah. But to talk about our guest as our uh, honored um, guest here on our two-year anniversary, this is uh, Mary Ellen Gavias. Hi, Mary Ellen. Thanks for being on Outlook. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Brian and Carrie, Outlook has been a really wonderful addition to the information available to blind Canadians and to the public about blindness. So congratulations on your two-year anniversary, and thank you for the work you do. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, maybe just quickly say, um, we've known Mary Ellen for about three years now. And Mary Ellen, you are the, currently the president of the Canadian Federation of the Blind. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. Um, and uh, 
Brian is our national treasurer, and <laughs> Carrie is development. the assistant editor of our magazine and our Ontario secretary. Um, and so um, we've worked together closely, and it's been a wonderful thing to see the way that they contribute to the um, empowerment of blind people that they meet and that they don't meet that, except through this podcast. So, yeah, it's it's been and continues to be a really splendid collaboration. So how long have you been president? I became president. I joined the Canadian Federation of the Blind the, the day it existed. Um, in fact, uh, my husband and I began an organization that ultimately became two organizations. Uh, We started it officially in June of 1992, and the Canadian Federation of the Blind, part of that organization, has been in existence since June of 1999. Um, We are an organization run by blind people. Um, Our membership, our voting membership, is exclusively made up of blind individuals, although we welcome sighted people as supporting members. Um, we made the structure that we did so that the control of organizational policy would be in the hands of the people it affects. Um, our One of our purposes is to coordinate our work with the work of the National Federation of the Blind in the United States although we are completely separate um, legally, we are very much tied together by by friendship and by mutual goals, and we share experiences and insights and help one another to whatever degree we can. Um, we felt when we were beginning here in Canada that having access to such a large pool of knowledgeable and effective advocates would help us um, gain more um, success with our efforts. And that has, in fact, been true. So um, that collaboration is a very important part of what we do because our philosophy of blindness is a philosophy based uh, on the philosophy any long-term Outlook listeners have been hearing for two years now. So, Right. We try to highlight it when we, when we can. Um, yeah, so we've only known Mary Ellen for three years, as I said. And um, obviously, this um, Canadian Federation of the Blind has been around for 20 years or more. But uh, Brian and I, we hadn't heard of it before three years ago. And we're, we've grown, you know, we grew up in Canada. We're Canadian. And uh, no, we haven't heard of it till now. What do you think about that as far as the rest of the country, as far as a, if we are an example of that, blind and sighted? The bad news is that blind people, many of them, have not heard of us. The good news is that the potential for reaching people and expanding um, what we do to help one another is virtually limitless. Mm-hmm. And so it's both, like so many things, there are up and down sides to it. Um we grow organically as people hear about us and become involved. They help spread the word to other people. Right. Um, we have, as a, 
as our vice president is fond of saying, and he's completely right about it, we punch well above our weight. Um, Many of our members, Brian and Carrie being among them and others, to give of their time and their uh, knowledge and their support to one another in an almost sacrificial way. But it's a big country. There are thousands and thousands of kilometers in all, you know, from sea to sea to sea. And there are blind people who don't know about us yet and whom we haven't been able to reach. So we are very much looking for uh, more people to to reach out to others, to spread out the work, to help us dream big for a brighter future. And it, it's sad that we didn't find you earlier, but it's not surprising given that um, we are... We are the rootiest of grassroots out there. We, <laughs> we are, we're really blind people where we live and kind of at the core of our existence. Our members, we have no paid staff. We have a tiny budget and um, we work out of commitment to encouraging blind people. And we've got a lot of different skill sets in the organization some people are really, really policy wonks and can quote you chapter and verse of different government programs. Other people are uh, very much involved in, well, how would a blind person solve this personal problem? And they're really good individual problem solvers. Yeah. Um, and other people are uh, social networkers and want to tell our stories to the public. So. You know, we've got a lot of different people with a lot of different skills, and we need more. Right. Um, exactly. For sure. Uh, and we touched on it briefly, for sure, and we've talked about it on previous shows, but I thought maybe just take a quick minute as president to talk a little bit to our listeners about the, the philosophy and what, what it stands for. Yeah, our philosophy, the, the, there's a really short tagline, you can live the life you want as a blind person. Mm-hmm. Um, another way of saying it is that if blind people have training and a decent opportunity and belief in themselves, we haven't even begun to reach the limits of what's possible for blind people. But if you take away any of those things, then blindness can be a really bleak experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so our job as an organization is an expansion of what each blind person's job is as an individual. We need to try to broaden our horizons, learn more about what's possible, expand our belief in ourselves, and then we need to move on beyond our personal life and try to create opportunities by education when we can, and by advocacy, and sometimes by more confrontational means like uh, human rights cases uh, or right. um, direct challenging to processes and policies that work against blind people. Um, that that might be going to a local news site and saying, your app isn't accessible, could you please fix it? Mm-hmm. Uh, or it might be saying to the city of Victoria, 
your new bike lanes present a danger to blind people, and since you wouldn't listen to our advocacy, we're taking you to the tribunal. Uh, It might be somebody sitting down with a person on on social assistance and saying, can't we work together to develop a plan so that this person can get skills that will make him or her more independent? And uh, it might be cheering on and encouraging the development of new training programs around the country. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of ways that we advocate for one another individually and collectively, but the bottom line philosophy is that blindness doesn't need to be the characteristic that defines you. Um, all characteristics are limited. If you're really, really brilliant, a job as a dishwasher might not be easy to get because the employer will say, hey, this guy is a PhD. He's not going to want to wash dishes forever. Um, so even characteristics that most people regard as positive have their limitations. Blindness is a characteristic and does have limitations, but they are so different and so much less than most people believe them to be that we've got a tremendous personal education and empowerment job and a public education job to do. Because I'm not, you know, too uh, afraid to admit that, you know, like you say there, for people who are blind to find more confidence in themselves, I'm still looking for that sort of like, you know, like I've gotten, I've done well in some areas, but in other areas, I still struggle to feel like I, uh, anybody cares what I have to say, or that, you know, that I'm ever gonna find all I'm dreaming of, uh, even here in Canada with such a great, you know, way of life that we are lucky to have. Blind or sighted, um, lives up to our full potential. We just don't have enough time to do that. Mm-hmm. And by choosing to emphasize one part of our strengths, we don't, we necessarily de-emphasize another. So to some degree, that's a human problem that we mm-hmm. all face. Exactly. But blind people face it in a way that is very different in that we are often denied experiences, sometimes really simple experiences that other people gain as a matter of course. And so we set our own personal limitations way lower than they need to be. You know, when I was a child, my parents believed a great deal in me as a young blind person, but there were holes in their level of belief. So they expected me to wash and dry the dishes. But they never expected me to clean off the table because they reasoned that my sighted brothers could do it much quickly because they could spot where the glasses and the silverware and the dishes were without having to to use their fingers to search and that their process was faster. So I didn't learn or expect myself to clean off a table. And when I started thinking about being an adult and wanting to move into an apartment with my university roommate, my parents' response was, that's not fair to her. You can't clean off a table. Mm-hmm. Um, by, by that time, I knew that I really could do it. I hadn't had experience, but I knew that it could be done. But I was also a lazy, entitled young person who 
didn't really want to take on any more work. And that's common necessary. when you're when you're younger, especially with this the advocacy and all of this stuff. I find now being yeah. in my thirties, it, it it's a lot a little bit easier. Whereas when you're growing up, you really and it it is important to focus on yourself, and people are going to be a little bit fo- focusing and selfish if you want to call it that. But it's more so growing up and and just getting yeah. used to being an adult. So well, but but I figured I didn't I didn't really want to clean off the table because that meant wiping off, you know the food that people spilled when they were eating supper and it was gross and disgusting and I didn't want to do the job. So I didn't bother to tell my mother that I could do it until she said, oh, well, the fact that you don't do that limits your opportunity to do something you want. And then I I all of a sudden realized, ah, getting out of work really doesn't serve me in the long run. I really need to start taking responsibility for things. But when you don't know what you don't know, you can't fix it. And for a long time, I didn't know that blind people could do that. It just didn't occur to me that that was a good use of time for a blind person because well-sighted people can see those things much more quickly. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I have now raised, my husband and I, he's also blind, we've raised four children and I don't have anything to prove to anybody about cleaning off the table. Now my job is to get, or years ago when they were teenagers, my job was to get my young children to do their responsibility for cleaning off the table. And they were all cited and they didn't want to do it either. So uh, so it kind of, you know, sometimes we put onto blindness things that are just basic decisions that people make. But if you walk into a social gathering and the first thing that happens to you because you're blind is that somebody tries to find you a seat, bring you a cup of coffee and a plate of cookies, and you know, then walks away and you find yourself sitting isolated at a table, then you, you start thinking about what is this costing me in terms of networking, in terms of being viewed as just part of the community, how can I change this? What can I do to change those perceptions? And sometimes it's just as simple as getting up and walking around with your cup of coffee, but if you've never done that, um, you're more likely to be klutzy and spill it the first couple of times. So the Federation, one of the things we do is to try to offer people a safe place to explore those issues, either by talking about them or by doing them in local gatherings of blind people. Um, and it's it's a uh, it's exciting to watch my own horizons expand. And they I'm 68 years old, and they're still expanding because I'm always meeting blind people who do more and think about things in different ways than I do. And it's really fun to encourage a blind person who might be a little shy and timid to try something new and expand. And that's one of the things that is the most fun about being in the CFB is is expanding your own horizons and helping your colleagues expand theirs. Yeah, I think uh, we talked a bit about your childhood there, but maybe jump back there. 
furthest we can go here. And um, where were you born and what was your childhood like? Like, where, where did you go to school? Uh, sure. I was born in Toledo, Ohio, the third of five children. I have two older brothers and a younger brother and a younger sister. Um, my parents were um, high school graduates. Um, my mother, before, back in the 50s, you had children and you stayed home with them. But before that, my mother was a bookkeeper. My father sold auto parts for a living. Um, so they were not highly educated, uh, but they were really committed parents. And so they worked with other parents in our area. There were no options for public school education in my town. And so that meant a 120-mile journey, a two-and-a-half-hour drive to the School for the Blind. And my parents believed that there was no substitute for family and that I could compete in a public school if the setting was correct. And so they began working with other parents, uh, doing, before I was old enough to have any clue about it, but doing really intensive advocacy, getting thrown out, literally escorted from the school board's um, offices, um, doing public education campaigns and some what they would call now guerrilla theater and threatening to engage in public demonstrations in the 1950s in order to uh, open a class for blind kids in the public school. And I benefited from that. I went to that class and got a pretty solid education and was able to stay home. Um, then I later went to Catholic school because I thought that would give me um, opportunities for development in my faith and and other ways, the, the, the Catholic school had a higher educational ranking than the local public school. And in the United States, they're very different school districts. You don't, you know, it's not like some Canadian provinces where the Catholic school system is part of the public school system. So when I left the public school system, um, they dropped all support for me. So I went from having my material in Braille to having absolutely nothing in Braille unless I could find it myself somewhere. And so there were two of us who were blind students who had that experience, and we both graduated. Um, it taught me uh, resilience and creative problem-solving in a way that nothing ever has before or since, I think. Um, after graduating from high school, I attended Bowling Green State University, got my bachelor's degree, and worked for six months uh, in a sheltered facility for people with mental handicaps as a low-level staff member. Um, it was not a good place for me to be because it was a place that paid people sub-minimum wages and was very custodial and but it was a job, so I took it, and I stayed because you don't ever want to leave a job if you're blind, if you're afraid you're going to have a hard time getting another one. Yeah. So being laid off was a gift. Um, I then, uh, through the National Federation of the Blind, standing in a registration line, I got into a conversation with a member of the National Board who was a leader 
of the Federation at that time. And he died this spring. But um, he asked me what I was doing, and he was just interested. I was a young college graduate that was just starting out, and he just was interested in what was happening. He didn't really know me, but what was happening with me. And so I... um, I talked to him about my dream of someday designing programs for blind for people who became blind as older adults. Well, he was a networker and he was friends with the head of the Nebraska Agency for the Blind and that agency had a very low budget. Their salaries were horrible. Um but they were looking for somebody to plan and develop programs for the older blind. And to be honest, they could not find somebody with the skills and experiences and the history of doing that that they needed because the pay was so poor they would have been laughed out of the out of the uh, interview. But I was young and I was unemployed and... It was more money than I'd ever made before, so I jumped at the chance and moved to Nebraska and developed programs for the elderly blind, including public education, uh, then was later assigned to develop programs for deafblind individuals, um, and worked also at the beginning to help develop programs for individuals with who are blind and had uh, mental disabilities, and the program grew and expanded to such a point that when I left four and a half years later, there were people handling each of those tasks. So I created enough work for, you know, well, the organization had grown enough. I participated in, I don't want to take credit for it, but mm-hmm. um, three vibrant growing programs and the, you know, for three people. And so, I left there, went to graduate school for a semester, um, and then had an opportunity to work for the Illinois legislature. And so I moved, even though the state capital is Springfield, the major population center of Illinois is Chicago, and I worked for the speaker's office. He was a Republican. Um, Chicago was a Democrat city. It was... uh, a really good practical education in dysfunctional politics. I, my job was to examine service programs for social service programs, especially for people with disabilities, but other programs and report to my boss about what was working and what wasn't and recommend um, policy and and legislative changes that would make the programs more effective. And um, that was a really interesting um, development of my involvement in policy development um, because the political system was so dysfunctional. Um, the I, I learned also that that um, sometimes you can put forth something really positive and nobody will disagree with it, but nothing will get done. And so I, it, I learned a good deal about 
patients and operating in a less than optimal real world. Um, and so my boss, who later went on to be the, secre- the Secretary of State running the Division of Motor Vehicles, and then went to be, le- he became Lieutenant Governor and then Secretary of State and then Governor. And then he followed the unfortunate Illinois tradition of going to the State House, to the Big House. Uh, he was convicted of felony. And uh, so he, I think he is on parole now, uh, but he spent many years in jail. Um, I was astonished by that. The criminality happened after he had left the legislature. So it was not anything that I witnessed because I wouldn't have stayed if I'd witnessed it. But um, I did witness a fair bit of behavior that I regarded as unethical um, in the system as a whole, but not, you know, I didn't know this guy was going to do felonious things. Um, But, and it still saddens me. But when I left about the time he was leaving the legislature and was hired by the National Federation of the Blind and spent the next seven, nearly seven years running a program called Job Opportunities for the Blind. And that program uh, matched blind people with employers, uh, helped blind people prepare to deal with the employment market and taught them ways to educate about their blindness, explain job gaps, um, help people find others who had done similar work so that they could share experiences and and learn from one another. Uh, We helped develop, invent the very first technology that permitted a blind person to become a court reporter in the modern era. Um, And... It was a, it, it was fun. It was exciting. Um, it was heartbreaking to see how many blind people were ready and willing to work, but couldn't get the first opportunity. And it was also sad to see how many blind people had a real desire to work, but had never been given the training, the skills, or the experience to make them ready to go to work. Absolutely, um, and I mean, this stuff is still happening today oh, in, in many yeah. ways but things things change over time and and maybe things are being, getting slowly better and like you've talked about for sure is patience is such a such an important part of it you're listening to outlook today on radio western we are speaking with mary ellen gabius president of the canadian federation of the blind and we're going to take a quick break for some ads and we'll be right back welcome back you're listening to outlook on radio western today labor day and we have a perfect guest for our two-year anniversary of Outlook. Yes, two years. Yeah. Uh, we've been talking with Mary Ellen Gabius, uh, president of the Canadian Federation of the Blind, which maybe most of you haven't heard of. We hadn't heard of it three years ago. But here we are now. And we wanted to learn all she's seen of these things. So you told us before the break about uh, being born in the U.S. Uh, so you're in Canadian in Canadian territory now. Where did you... Um, end up coming and what what brought you to Canada at the time? I married a blind Canadian professor who I met through the National Federation of the Blind. Uh, Paul is a psychologist, an experimental psychologist, and um, we got married um, 
fully expecting to to live in the United States, and then um, things developed, and he got a job opportunity at St. Thomas University in New Brunswick, which was my, other than visiting for a day here and there um, as a tourist, that was my first experience with Canada. Loved it, and then we moved to Kelowna, British Columbia. He worked first at Okanagan University College, and that then switched and became part of it became University of British Columbia Okanagan, and so he is a tenured professor there. And I have been at home raising our four children. Um, we made a decision that that was the way we would structure our family. I've done volunteer work throughout our marriage, um, and I worked for one year um, on a contract, but by and large, I have been at home raising four kids and doing uh, the work of the Canadian Federation of the Blind uh, as a volunteer for 30 years. 30 years, yeah, trying to put ourselves at the times. So this um, would have been around the time of the um, Americans with Disabilities Act? I left the United States two years before the ADA was passed, Mm -hmm. but because I keep really close ties with friends and follow American Federation news very closely, um, I recognize that the ADA has had some really important um, impacts on human rights in the United States. Um, widespread, but still not as widespread as as we would hope. Um, there were previous civil rights bills, the Federation in the 1960s, worked on something called white cane laws and that was they were laws that guaranteed basic human and civil rights to blind um deafblind and otherwise physically disabled people um and so the the groundwork had been laid but the ADA expanded things i was surprised when i came to canada to learn that the basic Disability rights were guaranteed in the charter, but that the actual implementation of those was still mostly through human rights commissions and tribunals, and that the patchwork of laws in Canada, um, trying to negotiate through all of them is a little like trying to nail jello to the wall. It's hard to make anything really and and the learning curve is enormous. Mm-hmm. Um, so as far as what you've seen, I mean, Canada, a beautiful place, a great place to raise your children, I would assume. But what did you, what have you thought over the years about, uh, yeah, the differences in the U.S. and Canada as far as advocacy? Brian and I are just getting more familiar with that stuff. I grew up loathing politics like many do, and I just couldn't imagine doing anything in in that public policy thing, even though I'm starting to realize now that that's how deeper change gets made. But uh, what would you say the biggest difference is as far as how we advocate and how we tackle these things? A company or a country whose basic model is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is in some real fundamental ways very different from a country whose operating motto is peace, order, and good government. And so, although in many ways, you can go to McDonald's in either countries, you watch the 
many of the same movies and listen to much of the same music unless you're fortunate enough to get into the Quebec scene and get to hear some of the wonderful French music that Canada has to offer. Um, bilingualism is a huge difference in yeah, for sure, in yeah. the two countries. But um, despite many superficial similarities, there are some pretty profound differences in the way people view advocacy. Um, Canadians are very polite, and it's a deep politeness. It's not just superficial. And Canadians are very much interested in compromise and finding ways so that everybody wins something and nobody loses everything. Uh, Blind Canadians have a really strong desire to be of service and to be supportive. Uh, Sighted Canadians have a really strong desire to be of service and supportive and respectful of blind Canadians. Uh, But at the same time, the structure for services in Canada is profoundly weak and poor compared to that in the United States. So the overall tone and you're less likely to have strangers come out of nowhere and grab you without speaking first in Canada. That happens frequently, especially in large American cities. Um, Canadians are by and large more polite and respectful, and it's genuine. Um, But the the level of training here, the level of availability of services and skills training is it's not even in the same ballpark. When you moved to Canada, how quickly, like, did you notice, or did how, how much did you know about that before you moved here? And then once you did move here, how, how did that feel kind of with the everything? Well, I was very plugged in and working at the national headquarters of the National Federation of the Blind. I had the opportunity to meet uh, Canadians, both on the consumer side and on the the service provider side, and I knew from the consumers and and even from some of the things that the service providers had said and I'd observed that things were developed very differently and that, that they weren't as solid. Um, I, I was shocked at how little meaningful training is really available in Canada. Um, I didn't need training so it didn't affect me personally but if I would meet a blind person I'd say well you know have you learned this or that or the other and the opportunities to do that were so limited that it it, in the United States you there's a every state has a, a government department with a specific budget that is directed to provide targeted services to individuals so that the government pays if you need a Braille course. The government specifically pays so that you get the Braille course or um, if you need a whole range of services, the government specifically pays to provide those. If you need um, technology, it can justify it by some kind of a vocational or educational plan you can get that technology. I'm not saying that it's perfect. 
unemployment rates are high in the United States, too, and there are a lot of blind people with very limited skills. But there is at least a structure that you can tap into and fight to get the services you need. In Canada, uh, because CNIB has been around and has been privately and charitably funded for now over a century, um, the general feeling of Canadian governments is, well, we'll give the money to the charity and let them decide Mm -hmm. how they're going to spend it. There is no... There's no, you don't go to your government and say, I want a specific plan to pay for these services to get me trained and employable and help me find work. Um, so you kind of go and you get what happens to be available and um, you can you can negotiate within that structure to try to get the services you want, but you don't go in and get a, a sort of a, in effect, contractual this is what, you know, we, I agree to work hard at my training program, but there will be a training program. Right. So, so that's a huge difference. Um, the, one of the advocacy efforts of the Canadian Federation of the Blind is for change in the variety and number of programs available so that consumers will have a choice, and that involves uh, having a lot of the funding follow the individual and each individual having an individualized written plan uh, that they agree to and that the that the funder agrees to so that there's accountability for services that are provided and for outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Yeah, no, I'm sure. I mean, the countries are, we're close, but we're very, we're very different in many ways. Uh, yes. But uh, we, we're certainly glad that you you came to Canada when you did, and this all happened. I the way love it's Canada. I yeah, you I recently think, became a, a Canadian citizen. Right? I, I, the pandemic. I had my date, and it was April seventeenth, oh, yeah. and the <laughs> pandemic stopped it. So we I would have all gone out there to the government celebrate with you. If we could do an online ceremony. Oh, yeah. I could have become a Canadian sooner, but you know, I'm like you, you, you kind of do the urgent things. And with four kids, there were a lot of urgent yeah, things. A lot more going on. Than... I just, I put it off because I was a permanent resident here mm-hmm. perfectly legally. And I found myself working on political campaigns for different parties at different times, different people at different times. And I would say, I am happy to door knock for you, but you know, I can't vote. <laughs> and I finally, I finally was shamed into, well, do the paperwork, get it done, and I did finally. And then COVID happened, so mm-hmm. it will happen. I, in my heart, I've been a Canadian for a long time, but mm-hmm. it's it's proper, it's derelict of me not to have made it happen on paper. But as I say, we talk about intersectionality a lot, and with everything sort of erupted as it has and still ongoing there and everywhere uh, here in Canada too. Uh, we're not exempt from that. What What would you say is blind people's role in the U.S. Um, with everything that's going on right now? Like, how do we support other minorities and their issues? Because, like, we believe it all comes back around and we support each other. Yeah. So. Well, the Federation is, is really clear that our expertise and our authority comes from who we are as 
blind people. Mm-hmm. And so we don't, you know, Federation in the U.S. And, and largely in Canada, too, doesn't go out and say uh, we're supporting this other mm-hmm. group's issue. We come in and say, with respect to blind people who also have that other group exactly. issue, here's how their lives can be better. So we bring a blindness perspective to all the other groups, and because our membership is made up of people with all kinds of intersectional um, characteristics, mm-hmm. you know, black, brown, um, LGBTQ, gay, straight, women, men, yeah. they bring their religious, irreligious, they bring their experience to the Federation, and although we've always thought we were doing a good job of including those perspectives or saying, you know, blindness is the tent we're under, uh, come on in. Mm-hmm. We've realized that we haven't always understood ways in which blindness affects different people differently. So we've worked, you know, we work hard to try to make sure that we understand that, but the purpose is not to divide, but to unite and and a and lot about the really federation. Supportive. A lot about the federation is learning as you go, and you're going to make mistakes. And for me, becoming treasurer, you know, it's something I've never done before. And and like like you talk about in the past, maybe realizing that certain blind people are at, have different skills or different whatever it may be. That it, it's yeah. just all about learning, and you're never going to learn if you don't make mistakes. So, you know, if a blind cane travel instructor, first of all fighting to get blind people to teach others how to get around safely was a many-year project as a federation. Mm-hmm. Well, we just learned recently that uh, one blind instructor in the United States who was African-American got stopped by the police who asked him, why are you following that white woman around? Oh, <laughs> and so you know, we, we obviously, that's, you know, we don't want our... We don't want that kind of thing to happen to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, learning what blindness is like for all kinds of people. You know, mm-hmm. blindness is different for every individual, but there are a lot of commonalities. And yep. so uh, we start with the commonalities and then incorporate uh, the ways in which blindness is different for different people. Now, for example, wi- the women's movement, um, mm-hmm. In both the United States and Canada, women have always been very much a part of the leadership of the organization. The Canadian Federation have, of the Blind has had three presidents, and two of them have been women. Right. Um, it's, and so we, you know, are there things that we can do to help blind women have have opportunities that they don't have. Sure, probably, but, you know, within the organization, that's not a a specific issue. Um, Are there ways in which we can, you know, make sure that, you know, our code of conduct is treat all people with respect and, and, and if there's a problem speak up and speak out and we can all learn. So, yeah, it's a it's an ongoing process, but um you know, there 
we've had occasionally people who who have had ideas that, about other groups, and we've had to kind of say, no, no, that's not where we are here. We're we're not in favor of, you know, we want people to make peace, but if you have a phobia, of, you know, a dislike of some group, keep it to yourself and keep it out of... Religious differences or... And, and get to know people yeah. who have that characteristic and maybe learn something too. Yeah. But we have a very strong code of conduct that says treat everybody with respect. Right. And anybody who feels they're not being treated with respect, we really want them to to explain how. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so maybe to talk a bit about a few touch on here, a few of the things that the CFB has has been working on or dealing with, uh, just currently to show what we actually do for people who are new to us uh, sure. or not so new. And so, for anyone who just tuned in, you're yeah. listening to Outlook on Radio Western. We're speaking with Mary Ellen Gabius, president of the Canadian Federation of the Blind, and time flies by. We're currently, we need, uh, have about uh, 10 uh, minutes left, so. Yeah, okay, let me give you four or five advocacy things we're working on. Great. Uh, advocacy, advocacy issues can arise out of nowhere. Uh, Monday, we got a call from an individual who was trying to um, attend a, a training program for blind people. And because it was in a different prom, province um, and she was receiving public assistance, her province was saying, well, if you want to go there, then you're, you're off assistance in this province. And um, we were able to work with her, you know, the, the system and with an advocate here in, in her province to explain why they should make an exception. And that's the kind of thing we do supporting people who have individual struggles who need help. Uh, Last summer, a blind person was uh, arrested for trying to bring a guide dog into a 7-Eleven. He's filed a human rights uh, complaint, and we've we've worked to support him in his efforts to, to educate the police about why they shouldn't have arrested him and to educate businesses about the importance of serving people who are accompanied by guide dogs. And we've done several taxi discrimination cases where taxis see the guide dog and whoosh right on by leaving the blind person in the lurch. Um, because we rely and, on public transit to get where we need to go. We obviously don't drive. So this Yes, is yeah. we've worked with public transit to try to get them in some places in the country. In British Columbia, they did not have, except in the Vancouver area, um, technology that announced bus stops. And that is now, because of the CFP's advocacy, that's now available province-wide in British Columbia. Right, Ontario and of course, was ahead of us on right, that. Right, of course, that happens. Province yeah. to province is the problem. Yeah. yeah. Um, we are helping the British, the city of Victoria build bike lanes that require blind people to cross uh, lane filled with speeding bicycles to catch uh, uh, buses and blind people have no independent way of knowing when that's safe. So we complained to the Human Rights Tribunal and just wrapped up a three-week hearing 
on that topic. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that's one we're really trying yeah, to promote. It's a big one that's happening now, and we talked about it and quite extensive length last week and this is happening right. in cities around the world right so this is something that you got to start somewhere and if you don't bring these things to it, anyone's attention then they nobody thinks about it and it just or an continues to happen sometimes yeah and then we do other things that aren't public advocacy mm-hmm. like giving blind people you know teaching blind people we help we work with alliance club in certain parts of the country to help blind people who can't afford them to get iPhones and to get, we help teach them how to use them. And um, we also try to give our members who have not had opportunities to lead um, tasks that will help them develop their own leadership skills. And that helps the organization and it helps them. And um, so some of what we do is, you know, very personal, like, one member might sit with a blind person and say, yeah, you can fry an egg and here's how. I mean, uh, one member, we helped spend a week with a blind individual um, teaching independent living skills um, just so that person could move toward being more independent. Um, It depends that, you know, whatever... We we work, one of the big ones that we've worked with that I've spent a lot of time on is trying to make public libraries more accessible and accountable to citizens who don't read standard print. And so we've supported and provided advice to the National Network of Equitable Library Service, which is a library program run by... It's actually managed by the BC Libraries Cooperative, but it's funded by territorial and provincial libraries. And their job is to create accessible content for libraries, but also to work with publishers so that their content is born accessible uh, so that blind people can buy electronic books or borrow them from libraries and be able to read them using modern technology. Um, We believe that that's the ultimate goal is to have every book that is created being created accessible. Yes, and this is one that I sort of jumped in on uh, as I discovered uh, the CFB three years ago, and then I met you, and then I heard about Nels as a is even an option here in Canada. Again, I, I mean, maybe if I really did research, I would have dug in deeper, <laughs> would have found these things. They were out there this whole time, obviously. But yeah. So anyway, I've been working with my library and getting a bit of blowback yeah, here in Ontario. Really it's kind of yeah, um, but I appreciate the support of the CFB and all that. So I don't feel like yeah, I'm alone. We believe that um, we should be fully included to. And obviously some legacy books, a lot of paper books in the library are not accessible to blind people directly. But as libraries make decisions about reinventing themselves because the go in and pick up a book and bring it back in two weeks or be fine model is changing for for libraries in general, we insist on being part of that library development because as they reinvent themselves, they can reinvent themselves with us as part of the package. Traditionally, libraries worked to serve 
uh, poor and marginalized people who couldn't afford to buy books for themselves. And um, we want blind people to have the money to buy our own books, and that's increasingly possible with with pay services like Amazon, Kindle, and Audible and iBooks. Those can be all accessible, but uh, we want the public library to regard us as part of their new frontier of, of broadening and making services more inclusive. And so the fact that NELS is run directly by public libraries, you know, through their own organization and not a legacy charity library service is important to us. Yes, it is. Wow. Those are just a few of the things that we do. Yeah, there's so much to cover, yeah. and I, I really oh, yeah, I appreciate mean, everything that we've been talking about, and uh, we definitely like love to have you on again sometime because there's just there's just so much to talk about, and you know we're oh, just the other, t- t- tip of the iceberg here. Yeah, I mean, for example, we have a discussion group every month where people talk about how some aspect of being blind um, is is handled in a very personal way and you know sometimes it hurts to be blind not that that's inherent in blindness but learning how to navigate and do well in a world that is built based on people being able to see is challenging and sometimes painful and so we want people to have a chance to work through all of that stuff and to come away with it with suggested solutions or at least the knowledge that that people understand um, what it's like and and are with you in solidarity if something has happened that excluded you right thanks yeah that's well put okay great Uh, again we would like to welcome you to ontario in person uh, someday with this cold i can't wait yeah hopefully next year we can get you in the studio and yeah do this again because like there's so much to cover and it's just thanks for being on our thanks so much uh, two-year anniversary episode thank you you're you're a shining part of who cfb is and what cfb does um thank you i just have the privilege of being able to express for the whole organization but it really is about our members and the gifts and skills they bring to their table Thanks. Thank you very much, Mary Ellen, for coming on Outlook today. Find us on Twitter at OutlookCFB and on Facebook, facebook.com slash Outlook on Radio Western.